Pastor Ed Taylor speaks of the right motivation as you serve the Lord. You know, the only true moving motivation that's lasting and keeps you and I abiding in Jesus is love. It's the only motivation that is worthwhile in serving God. It's the only one that's going to keep you going when things don't go your way. It's the only one that's going to keep you going when nobody recognizes or even knows what you're doing. It's just the love of God. And it's not so much your love of God. Because we could turn that around to something. Well, I love God, so I want to serve him. That's great. But the Bible has a different order for us. We love God because he first loved us. This is amazing grace. When we become a new person in Jesus, we not only have heaven to look forward to, but a glorious purpose here on earth. A big part of that involves serving. And with that said, there is a right and wrong motive that we need to address. We'll talk about it on today's Abounding Grace. Hello and welcome. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 13, here's Pastor Ed Taylor. The Bible says knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And there's something about knowing Jesus personally, which is promised to us when we're in his presence, eternity, that pales in comparison to any educational pursuit, as fun as they might be. If I asked you, how many of you have had career disappointments? Because, <laughs> you know, when you're kids, you're always, what do you want to be when you grow up? Fireman, policeman, doctor, nurse. And through life circumstances, you find out that your present condition in your career is not what you thought it would be. You're not what you wanted it to be. And even if you did attain exactly what you wanted, you're doing exactly what gives you the most joy and, and you are doing what some of the advice was, is you know, if you really want to have a fulfilling career, you know, f- you know, find something that you really like doing and figure out a way to get paid to do it. And that's you. You could be at the highest level or you could be at a more frustrated level, but it still all pales in comparison because even the best jobs are frustrating at times. Even the best jobs have difficulties in them, and it pales in comparison to what we're promised in eternity when, as a side note, in eternity, there's no more work. How's that? So how's that for fulfilling? No more work. The curse is over in heaven. It's beautiful. And Paul's walking us through this back and forth. I know we're living here now. I know it's a groaning experience. I know there's pain here and now. I know that this temporary, this light affliction, he said back in chapter 4, is just for a moment. And it's, there's so much more far exceeding ahead, this eternal weight and glory. Or as he would write, and I love this translation in the message. It's in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Listen. So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, then act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what's going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. Your old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, even though invisible to spectators, is with Christ in God. He is your life. 
And when Christ, your real life, remember, shows up again on this earth, you'll show up too, the real you, the glorious you. Meanwhile, be content with obscurity like Christ. We're traveling along with Paul the Apostle, but more so in this second letter to the Corinthians, we're traveling along with Paul the pastor. He spent about 18 months in Corinth. And God used him to gather a group together and begin to teach the Bible to them and love them and serve them. And a church was planted, a gathering of people, a joyous, celebrating gathering of people that want to come and sing and worship and study the Bible. And Paul invested his life in the city and loved the people. He was with them in their worst condition because that's how he found them. That's how Jesus finds everyone before they're saved in their worst condition. And that varies depending on what kind of upbringing you have had and what kind of decisions you've made with your free will. But Jesus meets us just like Paul does, just like any real pastor, just like any real believer, meeting people right where they're at. Just where they're at in the midst of whatever they're in. And whatever they think, whatever trap, really in the essence of sin, but whatever trap sin has used to work a work of destruction in someone's life. That's where Paul met all these. And we learned earlier in our study in Corinthians, he starts listing all these behaviors that had messed them up, all these horrible things going on in their life. And then he says, but such were some of you. He says, this is your past. I knew you back then. I mean, I was there when you got saved, when you were born again. And it's these very same people that he poured his life into, these very same people that he discipled and he loved, spending so much time. You know, Paul was always on the move. But he spent some extra time in Ephesus. He spent some extra time in the city of Corinth. It's these very same people that God used Paul in their lives that has, they've turned against him. They have been influenced by these false teachers that have come through and they've turned against him and they have fallen under the sway of these guys that, want, that took up their life's cause to destroy Paul. They weren't happy for a variety of reasons with the blessing of God upon Paul's life. These folks and influencing people in the church, this is all by way of review to kind of catch up where, where we've been for many weeks prior, but they challenged his ministry. They challenged his calling. They challenged his position. They challenged his teachings. They challenged his character. They challenged his integrity. They went after anything in his life that would get him to quit, to leave the church in Corinth vulnerable without any direction without any help to correct the issues in their life. So these chapters where, we're right, where we are right now is more of a passionate plea in his life. And he's answering the issues. I could say that he's bordering on defending himself, but more so he's, he's not like putting up a fight and chasing down and putting out fires. He's just reminding them of the facts and then letting the facts lie and leaving it to the Lord. But it is wise to say, these are the facts. You guys, your eyes are on the earthly things. And because your eyes aren't heavenly, you're being influenced by all this nonsense. And so pick up with me in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians. Where, well, pick up in verse 12. If you're reading from a New King James, you'll notice that the number is bold. Do you see that? The reason that's bold is because that's a tool that the translators in the New King James use to identify a paragraph. So in the, in the NIV, if you're reading from an NIV, they, they do the paragraphs for you by indenting. But for the New King James, because the Greek text would read straight through with no punctuation, with no separation of paragraphs to help us. So because paragraphs begin the thought, let's pick up in verse 12, and then we'll work our way through to the end of the chapter. 
For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to glory on our behalf, that you may have something to answer those who glory in appearance and not in heart. This is a direct reference to the people that are going after him. Uh, the Many commentators believe it's the Judaizers, the legalists, very unhappy with the doctrine of grace. And they glory in appearance. They have the outward appearance, but inside they're far from God. Their, their heart isn't right. For, verse 13, if we are beside ourselves, you could write next to that, the phrase literally means completely out of our minds. For if we're out of our minds, if Paul's saying if we really are what you think we are, that we're not thinking clearly, that we're out of our minds or here we're beside ourselves, then it's for God. Or if we're of sound mind, it's for you. So one of the accusations we find and we learn is that the, the believers in the church believe that Paul was not clear-headed. We may refer to a person like that today as insane. You may refer to someone beside himself, the idea of talking to yourself and having a conversation with yourself. Uh, that, that's saying, you know, look at him. He, he's, he's out of his mind. How can you follow somebody like that? He can't even think straight. Now, for those of you that have taken logic classes or debate classes, this is a classic attack. This is, this is so common. This has happened to you multiple times. I bet you didn't even know it was happening. But it is an attack that is going after the person. It's an emotional attack, and it goes after the person. There's a technical word for it. It's called ad hominem. So you can just write it down, and you can figure out how to spell it, because the next time you hear it, <laughs> next time you hear it, you'll know what's happening. The next time you receive it, you'll know what's happening. And basically, it goes like this. When there are no facts to substantiate a disagreement, you know, when you're Arguing perhaps something dumb. I always use this because I'm at a window and the sky is obviously blue. And, and then someone is in my office who, no, it's not blue, it's purple. You go, it's blue. No, no, it's, it's yellow. Or some, you know, and so, no, it's blue and it's yellow, it's blue. And then he finally gets frustrated. Well, you're an idiot. Oh, okay. So it's not about the sky anymore. It's about me. That's an ad hominem attack. Where the sky is obviously blue and they have nothing to argue about. So they attack you. Ever happened to you? Well, so it did with Paul. Where the facts are clear, and because you can't win on the facts, you begin, and hopefully you don't do this, but it happens to you that, and maybe you do do this and you need to learn. That's a horrible way to argue. You don't want to go after someone. You don't want to start calling names. But it works. That's why people do it. Now you're not talking about, now you're doing, I'm not an idiot. Yes, you are. You're an idiot. You've been an idiot for 30 years. Like, dude, I'm not even 30 years old. What are you talking about? Like, how could I be? Well, you're an idiot before your mom was even thinking about you. And now, you know, your mom, and they start, it's like, I thought we were talking about the sky being blue. Yeah, but you're still an idiot. And and so, because there's no facts, that's what's happening with Paul here. It's so common. And again, if that's how you argue, then you need to stop that. That's that's just not from the Lord. You're not going to make any progress. Maybe you need to go back and revisit the facts. Maybe you need to study a little bit more on the facts. But attacking the person is bad logic. It's bad debate. It's bad argumentation. And it's a tactic. It's a tactic that now when you watch debates, you'll see it. You'll listen for it now. You go, wait a minute. They, no, no, no. You know, your education, you know, in those, those big debates about creation and evolution, the, well, you weren't really educated. You don't have as What does that have to do with the facts? What, what, what does that? Well, it doesn't have anything to do with the facts. Now we don't want it. That, as soon as you hear that, you just know it's a trap. We don't want to talk about the facts anymore. And basically the other person is saying, I'm done. I don't have anything else to say. 
you're an idiot. You know, that's basically what they're saying. You're like, oh, thanks. So Paul's saying this. I love what he does. He doesn't answer back in his writing this letter. You know, I'm not beside myself. He says, okay, even if I am, it's for the Lord. Fine. Even if I am an idiot, it's for the Lord. Paul would understand what it would be like to be beside himself. You can read his testimony over and over again. You can jot it down in Acts chapter 26, verse 11. It says that he was so enraged that he was out of his mind with anger. Against, back in Acts 26, he's saying, as he gives his testimony, he's saying, yeah, I, I, I was this way against the church. So if I was in, I know what it's like to be beside myself against the church. And if I'm that way now, then at least it's for the Lord. He's still using it. He's still using it. However, he says, if we're of sound mind, it's for you. So if I'm a sound mind, I'm here to serve you. If I'm beside myself, I'm here to serve God. Either way, God wins. And he doesn't get into it. He doesn't defend, I'm not, you know, and here's why I'm not. It's the same tactic they, they used on Jesus. This is not unusual. They accused Jesus of being beside himself. They accused Jesus of not being clear-minded, saying that he was the Messiah. It's a familiar tactic, and Paul answers well. Verse 14, for the love, you know, it's not about me being beside myself or saying mine. What it is, verse 14, it's the love of Christ that constrains us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. He says, it's not even about my mind. It's about the love of God. That's what moves us. What moves me is the love of God. Paul was able to see people with the eyes of God. And what he saw were people going to hell. And it troubled him. That's what he was able to see. When he comes into Corinth, he doesn't know anybody there. He doesn't, hasn't made any relationships with people there, but he immediately begins to share the love of God with people that are going to hell. A Christless eternity. And he wants to throw himself before them. Same thing happened when he came into Athens in Acts chapter 17. He was there waiting around, watching, looking at there. We, we've been there. When we take tours, if you want to go with us next time we go, we'll take you right up there on the Acropolis. We'll take you right down to Mars Hill. We'll do a little Bible study on Acts chapter 17, and you'll get an understanding of how the city was given over to idolatry. The whole place. You in your mind's eye will be able to think of all the idols that were everywhere. And the Bible says that when he saw the idolatry, when he saw all the idols, he saw a couple things. One, he saw a very religious, worshipful people He saw people that worshipped. He saw people that wanted to connect with deity. He saw people that knew that was something bigger than themselves, but they were trapped because they were lied to and they believed the lie. And so they started making their own idols. And in the Greek Greek philosophy and Greek religion, and uh, the Greeks had deified everything, the weather, the feelings, there were gods everywhere. And, And then it provoked him, the Bible says. His spirit was provoked in him, Acts chapter 17 that he found an idol that said to the unknown God, and he began to declare to them, I know you guys want to worship, I know you, but but let me tell you, I saw this one over here, let me tell you about the God you don't know. And he introduced Jesus to them. It was love. He put his own life at risk. He, He laid it all out there with the philosophers. He knew that they were smart. He knew that all they did was talk about new things, but his heart was broken for people. He was constrained by love. That's what moved him. You know, the only true moving motivation that's lasting and keeps you and I abiding in Jesus is love. 
It's the only motivation that is worthwhile in serving God. It's the only one that's going to keep you going when things don't go your way. It's the only one that's going to keep you going when nobody recognizes or even knows what you're doing. It's just the love of God. And it's not so much your love of God. Because we could turn that around to something. Well, I love God, so I want to serve him. That's great. But the Bible has a different order for us. We love God because he first loved us. What would motivate us is that in our worst condition, the love of God reached out to you. How could, your, how could you not melt as you begin to ponder God's love for you? Not so much your love for God. That's a natural response. It should be the natural response. You realize God loves you. He initiates love. How could you not respond with anything but, especially out of relationship, anything but love for God? This love of Christ, this love for what he's done. Men and women can be motivated by a lot of different things. Think of yourself. Again, I'm not asking for hands. But how many of you can think of a time when you were motivated by, the, when, when you had the wrong motives? Times where you've done the right thing for the wrong reason. Now, we can all say we've done the wrong thing for the wrong reasons, but what about doing the right thing, but with the wrong reasons? That would be the wrong motivation. Doing something in the name of God, but not because of the love of God, but because of your pride, or your ego, or wanting the pats on the back, or... Just wanting to accomplish something. You can think of all the motives. You could do the right thing, right thing, right? When you and I are caught up in religion, religion tends to, to stir up wrong motivation. I, I want to please the leadership. I want to please the priest. I want to please the pastor. I, I want, man, I just, the love of God has got me, Paul says. And everything else is, is it's just not what moves me. I mean, I think of the examples. I think sometimes it's pride or ego that would move people. Turn over to Mark chapter 10. Let me show you a couple of examples of wrong motives in the scriptures. Look at Mark chapter 10. Pick up with me in verse 37. They said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. And Jesus said, you do not know what you ask. Can you drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they said, we can. You know, they, they come to Jesus and we know from other gospels that their mom is involved, wanting to lobby for her boys. You know, there's only two places of power and prominence. It's one is on your left and one is on your right. And here are my boys. There was no love in that. A loving response would be to propel God, who do you want to sit? That's the right question. Who's going to sit at your right hand? I, I don't need to be there. I'm not interested in that. And, and I don't, you know, again, th- this, isn't, this isn't something that, that makes them bad people. It just makes them people. And uh, not motivated by the love of God in our own lives is going to make us people too. Human people in the flesh, the Bible would call that to you, New Testament believers. The flesh, the old sinful habit patterns where to be alongside, to stand with Jesus in his power is not a bad desire. But to ask for it and have mom come and lobby you for it, probably not the best motives. And we see that in other places where these same young men would be called the sons of thunder because in Jesus' name we're going to wipe out everyone that's not on our side. It's like, no, 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 no. But love is a different motivator. Turn back now to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. A love is a, is a mover and a motivator. How can you not think of the maternal love that God has put into a mom? The kind of 
Those of you that have had the privilege of being a mom, whether an adopted child like my mom or a child from your womb or, you know, a family member, and, and you think, man, the, the kind of sacrifice that moms make and dads, it's a, there's a true love in a parent, a true love in a grandparent, but there is something special about that maternal love that God has given to moms that will motivate them far beyond. I mean, guys, after one dirty diaper, I'm done. But you're so, moms are like, man, I'm so, I mean, I'm like, I saw all you guys out. I mean, I'm sure some of you like dirty diapers, maybe. But moms, they don't even, I don't even, I, I can't even, I mean, I remember, you know, when the kids are growing up, Marie kind of making fun that the diapers stunk. But I don't ever remember her complaining. I don't ever have a memory of her just like telling the kids, stop pooping so much, you know, what are you doing? Or, I don't ever remember a thought of, of her being upset. Just a lot of diapers being changed in our house, a lot. And just going extra mile, this love. It's, it's the same in your love for the Lord. You know, you know it's a dirty job serving the Lord. It's not always easy. You get involved in people's lives, it's painful, it's difficult. And then on top of this, poor Paul is being attacked and, and ridiculed and all he's done is love the church. It's a dirty job, it's a difficult job at times. So what's gonna move you but love? Encouraging us to serve Jesus with a motive of love. That's Pastor Ed Taylor on Abounding Grace. His message today is called, A New Person in Jesus. Hear it again online at calvaryco.church by searching for that title. It's part of our study in 2 Corinthians. Pastor Ed, as you were talking about serving out of a motivation of love and the wrong motives as well, a question comes to mind. Let's say someone is serving out of the wrong motivation, like uh, trying to impress people. Where will that get you? Well, it's interesting that that is one of the motives that moves people to serve, to try to impress people. The problem with trying to impress people is not, A, not only is it not from the Lord, but B, you will never be able to impress people. You will never be able to please people. You will never be able to meet people's needs, and therefore it will lead you frustrated and upset, and you'll start to be upset about serving God. Imagine that. The greatest gift One of the greatest gifts God's given to us on the earth is the privilege of serving Him as believers, and there you are all mad about it because people aren't happy with you. Actually, the exact opposite is most likely going to happen when you set out to serve Jesus, and that is not only will you not be an impression to people, but people will actually get mad at you and be upset with you and not happy that you're telling them the truth from God's Word. And so the best motivation to serve God is love. Love is the highest level of motivation that's possible. And your love relationship with God, as you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, will then lead you to love your neighbor as yourself. And reaching out to not impress people, but to rather find yourself abiding in Christ as He lives His life through you, as He lives His life in you, and you begin to serve Jesus with an encouraging heart. And so please don't try to impress people. Don't serve with the motivation to get something, but rather serve with the motivation to give something. It's not that you have to serve the Lord, it's that you get to serve the Lord, and what a joy it is. 
I like that. Don't serve out of a motivation to get something, but to give something. Thanks, Pastor Ed. At Abounding Grace, we're committed to delivering God's Word to people all across the world. But we can't do it alone. We're very thankful for the listeners that come alongside us with financial and or prayerful support. Your gift, whatever the size, would be greatly appreciated and put to good use. And if you'd like to help us reach people with the love and truth of Christ, please visit calvaryco.church or call 877-30-GRACE. And as you give $25 or more today, we'll say thanks by sending you contented in all things peace. Does contentment seem sort of like an elusive target to you? We live in a world that pushes us to always strive for more and never be satisfied with what we have. That certainly doesn't help matters, does it? But the Lord wants us to experience true contentment and peace, and it can happen. And the Bible points the way. Allow Pastor Jeff Geip to reveal the pathway to contentment to you in this book called Contentment. Call 877-30-GRACE. We'll get right back into 2 Corinthians tomorrow on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. We'll see you then. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. 